if you've ever listened to a podcast or read one of my books and thought, I wish I knew if that was the right thing for my body, or how could I make that work with my schedule and responsibilities, I've got something for you. A new workbook by me coming out late spring. My Perfect Movement Plan, the Move Your DNA all-day workbook, is for your specific situation because you are going to finish writing it. When you're finished, you will have a guide to a personalized movement diet that nourishes your body in the ways that you need it to. My Perfect Movement Plan is available for pre-order now, and if you pre-order from the publisher, there's a bonus, a free ticket to an upcoming online workshop, Spot the Missing Micronutrients. It's a 90-minute class where you'll learn about five often missing movement micronutrients, and these are subtle movements of the body. In this case, we'll be looking in the shoulders and the hips and the feet that are often tied to pain or injury in those areas. In this workshop, I'll also show you how to supplement with exercise vitamins. I'm putting air quotes around vitamins and how to adjust your regular movement so exercise supplementation isn't as necessary. Pre-order now at mpmpbook.com. That's my perfect movement plan, mpmpbook.com, and you'll automatically receive a bonus class ticket. But wait, there's more. Um, I'm going to be drawing three names from these pre-orders, and these peeps are going to get a small group session with me to go over your perfect movement plan. So you can ask me questions, and we'll brainstorm your specific situation on a Zoom call together. I cannot wait. So head over to mpmpbook.com for all the details on the book and the bonuses. Read through the frequently asked questions, order the book, get the class, and then get moving. I'm so excited to share this workbook. It's the missing puzzle piece you've been waiting for, and it's so very actionable. It's the Move Your DNA podcast with Katie Bowman. I'm Katie Bowman, biomechanist and author of Move Your DNA and a bunch of other books about movement. This show is about how movement works on the cellular level, how to change your position as you move and why you might want to, and how movement works in the world, also known as movement ecology. All bodies are welcome. Are you ready to get moving? Hello, friends. This is the 10th episode in this short series of interviews I'm doing on movement, specifically the many ways people consider movement outside of exercise. I'd like to do a small shout out to Dr. Ihi Heke, who I interviewed in episode 99, whose sharing of his indigenous perspective on movement and health has been our most popular episode, according to iTunes. So yay! You can hear it in my voice. It's hoarse from just saying yay and expressing my gratitude just to everyone who listened and shared, especially my New Zealand listeners. I really appreciate you getting the word out about Dr. Hecke's work. He is such an important voice in this movement movement. We're starting to tune in to other cultural perspectives, which is why I am excited to talk to Philip Brass today. He's a member of the Peipacasis First Nation on the Treaty 4 territory of Canada for another Indigenous perspective on natural movement. But before we get there, I've got some questions on natural movement to answer. These are brought to you by our Dynamic Collective, which is a co-op of sponsors that includes Softstar, Maimayu, Unshoes, 
Earthrunner, and Venn Design, all companies that support some lifestyle element of natural movement from minimal footwear, sandals, boots, running footwear, something to wear with your nice clothes, something that you can feel comfortable taking camping or backpacking for all ages, all seasons, to minimal furniture that includes sitting cushions and balls that allow more of you to move while you're just sitting there. These companies sponsor this question and answer portion of each episode of Move Your DNA, and you can find more about them in our show notes. So let me get to the questions. This one, t- for a little bit of context, I was recently in California where I was doing a lot of swimming in wild spaces, which is what I love to do, but also in swimming pools. And I had posted a little bit about something that I talked about on maybe the last or the previous episode about how I get more movement in a pool versus just using the same strokes over and over again. I like to toss and dive for things into deep water so that I end up just naturally using a much broader range of strokes versus that same kind of swim team approach, which I was also on and loved, which is a lot of repetitive stroking. So it's just more natural for me to, I guess, choose ways of interacting with the swimming pool that that don't require such narrow body use for you know, a single stroke moving over the top of the water. So anyway, I posted on Instagram and there was a lot of discussion in the Instagram post. So I'll link to that post in my show notes. But there was this great question um, from Kate and her comment was, no way. I'm assuming she said it like that because she put a bunch of exclamation points. No way. That's how Canadians talk. I take my kids to the pool every week during the cold months and always think Katie wouldn't count this as movement because it isn't weight-bearing. Am I wrong? I'm so happy to hear otherwise. So you can see exactly what I wrote back to her. But for those of you listening to this podcast, but I'm already here for the answer. It's like, of course, of course, swimming is a natural movement. And I find it to be a critical natural movement skill, given the fact that Many of us will encounter bodies of water in our life, and not only because it's fun, but because it can be life-saving natural movement knowledge, right? If we change the word skill to knowledge and to say, I have knowledge of how to move through the water, then it's very important. Is it weight-bearing? No. Does all movement have to be weight-bearing? No. So I guess as I explained to her, natural movement is a collection of many, many movements. So I would absolutely consider swimming to be a vitamin. It's just that right now in a sedentary culture where we are picking and choosing maybe the one or two vitamins that we are going to consume, it isn't weight bearing. And so, you know, due to these laws of specificity and that we adapt to the movements that we do, you can get a ton of movement nutrients from water, but you can't get all of them. And so many people will use water as a therapeutic approach, not just children, but adults, because for those who experience pain when they bear weight, it's a way to allow them to continue to move. Again, it's fun. You can use water in many ways. You can certainly increase the movement nutrition, I guess, found in a bout of swimming by by considering all of the ways that you use your body and what you're doing when you come to a body of water. For kids, I just would recommend 
just like as maybe a nutritionist would to make sure that swimming wasn't the only motion that was being done. You know, it's certainly better than nothing. And it's absolutely something to be doing regularly to build up that skill set. But I don't think that it replaces another movement nutrient. So that's my only commentary on it. Do I think it's awesome? Rad. Do I count it as movement? Yes. So am I wrong? Yeah, I would say that if you thought that I don't see swimming as a natural movement or something valuable, that's absolutely not the case. I would like to ensure that everyone had the ability to move through water in the the best way that they can. So anyway, thanks, Kate. This next question is on feet and shoe size. And it's going to be brought to you by Soft Star Shoes. Because speaking of sizing and footwear, my natural movement friends, you should check out their Primal Run Amuck line. I got to be on their... I don't know what you call it. I got to I got to see and assess and feedback on the shoes early on, not as a paid thing, but just as they they pulled lots of different people who work in feet, I guess, and shoes to ask for some feedback. And so I had my feedback and it was incorporated. And so if you have extra wide feet, check out these shoes. These are shoes with extra wide toe boxes, which is the part of the shoe that your the front of your foot or your toes go into. You want to be able to have space to spread those toes. And a lot of people are writing me saying that they have really wide feet and cannot find something minimal enough in this regard. So check out Primal Runamuck at softstarshoes.com. So here's a question from Inez who writes, the last time I bought shoes, I chose one size larger than I have been buying in past years. Do you know whether increased foot mobility actually can lead to lengthening and expanding of the feet? Is that a thing? I've been doing the exercises from whole body barefoot and simple steps to foot pain relief, as well as walking lots more in general and in minimal shoes. And alternatively, could it simply be that I'm more aware of toe and wiggle space such that previously I wasn't realizing my shoes were too small, but now I am. Thank you. And just so you know, your work is having an impact on my life and obviously your feet, Inez. So thank you for this question. It's a great question. So I would say that it can be both. It could be that really maybe you hadn't been paying attention to what your toes were doing in shoes before, that your toes might not have even been extended to their full length before. Many people, especially generations previously where you might only get one pair of shoes a year when you're a kid, is a lot of people report that they learn how to shorten their toes or kind of claw their toes, which makes your whole foot length less because they did not like the sensation of bumping up against the end of their shoe and they are obviously growing while they're wearing their shoes. So it could be that, yes, you have just now started to feel the way your toes are interacting with your shoes. And so you are buying a shoe one size larger because now that gives you the space. But also quite often people experience an increase in size of their foot. And so it's interesting, this idea of mobility seems to, again, in our minds, we hold it in a vacuum, which is like, oh, my toes just can go through greater ranges of motion, whether it's spreading apart or lifting up high. And that is true. But at the same time, it's also not happening in a vacuum, meaning if you have a lot of foot tension, the resting length of your foot is less. 
also when people develop strength in the rest of their foot, you know, they change the height of the arch. So like these in Move Your DNA, I was really trying to call out like you are actually changing the lengths. You're changing the lengths of certain segments because you're usually measuring length along one particular plane. And so it's not that the bones themselves are getting longer. It's that when you start playing around with multiple planes of orientation, you will affect things like length. Same thing as height. I took my dad to the doctor one time. This is going to be a classic Katie Bowman aside. When I took my dad to the doctor, they measured his height and it was like, oh, you've, you know, shrunk an inch. She was 89. And so she was just quickly explaining that the volume of your discs gets less. And, and, you know, that's, that can be one case. And I, I said, also though, if you're not measuring how much farther forward his head or shoulders are, it can be that if your spine's just curling forward, your height is now traveling around a curve and not straight up. So since you're measuring height along the wall, it could just be that he's more forward. And it was kind of like a, what? And then I showed her quickly the math, just by, if you just take a string and moved it forward, I said, you see his height, his segment length hasn't changed. He doesn't necessarily have shorter vertebral bodies, the height of the vertebrae themselves, or less mass in the disc. It's just all oriented in a different plane than what you are measuring. Same with the foot. So so maybe that's the holdup is like, could my bones be getting longer? Probably not. Could you have been through muscle tensions constantly, chronically holding your foot to a functional length that is different than what those segments of your bones allow? Yes. So anyway. You're welcome, Inez, for that long sidebar about this time I had with my dad. I just, you know, when people pass away, don't you want to talk about them all the time? I do. And when you combine that with someone who also wants to just talk all the time, there you go. Anyway, thank you, Softstar, everyone else in the collective, Unshoes, Earth Runner, Venn Design, maker of beautiful dynamic living space decor, and my Mayu outdoor boots for kids. For more information on these companies, go to the show notes, click listen, click podcast transcripts. They're linked on the top of the notes. And if you have a question, please send it to me via podcast at nutritiousmovement.com. I want to answer it. So let's do this. Philip Brass is a member of the Pepegasis First Nation in the Treaty 4 Territory of Canada. He is a dedicated husband and father and traditional knowledge carrier. He is a strong and emerging voice in the areas of indigenous food sovereignty, land-based education, climate action, community health, natural movement, and traditional indigenous knowledge and wisdom. Philip has been described as a visionary. He's a big thinker who possesses the ability to articulate the connections between the different systemic issues facing our world today and how traditional indigenous knowledge offers many of the solutions. I met him when I was in Saskatchewan. Canada last year, or maybe it was uh, like a year and a half ago. We'll talk about it in a second. But first, Philip Brass, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. We were trying to talk briefly about how we met, and neither one of us can remember the name of the conference, but 
Saskatchewan First Nations, I be- we believe it's the like it's the nutritionist. Yeah, I mean, it, it took place at the uh, Treaty Four Governance Center in Fort Capel, Saskatchewan, and there was, uh, yeah, I, I believe it was uh, perhaps Health Canada. There was mm. uh, dietitians there from throughout the province, and uh, of course, different uh, First Nations staff. I think mostly health staff that were present. About a year and a half ago, yeah. Yeah, it was September, so I guess we are like on the year and a half mark. It was beautiful, and so we got a chance to work together. And I'm just really happy that you are here for reasons I think will become obvious. You are really immersed in a lot of things that maybe my listeners here understand in a theoretical way, or they're trying to learn more about maybe their role in their environment. And I just think that you're your perspective, your work is so important. So I'd like to share it. So I guess we're going to start with like my first question, which is what is, what does natural movement mean to you? Yeah. Um, and that's such a juggernaut of a question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, because I think natural movement uh, really goes and affects all aspects of life, uh, whether it be our, our physical health, uh, the health of our our, our mental health, uh, politics, you know, and, and our, our our life practices every day uh, in trying to find a sustainable path forward for for future generations. So, um, you know, just on a, on a practical level, as an individual, natural movement is is something that as, as I'm aging and beginning to feel the aches and pains from my my life, it's it's become very much of a conscious effort to to go back to movements that, that that our ancestors would have been familiar with you know finding just better ways to sit and and uh, or to squat and to and to walk i mean all of these different uh, uh ways that we see the the toll that sitting in chairs or our cars and, and what have you or or repetitive movement uh through industrialized working conditions you know and to see what what that's uh doing to our bodies and doing to our communities and doing to our um, our ability to to maintain cultural health in our communities. So I know food sovereignty is a big component of your work. How do you see natural movement relating to, I guess, food sovereignty? And I want to talk about, why don't you start with, like, what does food sovereignty mean to you? And then how does it relate to natural movement slash indigenous practices right yeah well for myself indigenous food sovereignty is really uh recognizing just how important our food culture is to uh the overall well-being of indigenous nations i mean we can expand that out to all human cultures but of course i spend my time as an indigenous uh person uh focused on reclaiming uh, indigenous ways of knowing and being, recovering from the effects of colonialism here in North America. And, you know, it, in, in my journey in life, whether it be participating in our spiritual institutes and ceremonies, or whether it be um, in just some of our, our festivals, such as powwow or other aspects of culture, I've come to understand that our food culture really is the core. Mm-hmm. You know, people will will say, you know, language is the foundation of our culture. Where I would I would argue that it's actually our food culture that is the foundation, and it's that food culture that gave birth to our languages. 
So, you know, we we see, you know, in, in language recovery of in, indigenous languages, the language retention doesn't seem to uh, really get traction when when students are trying to learn that in a classroom environment. Hmm. But when we put them back on the land and when they're on the land, that usually always has something to do with food production or food foraging, because that essentially is how our ancestors spent their entire day was in the pursuit of food. And so when we are on the land, we quickly begin to reconnect with a lot of those uh, the linguistic sort of metaphors and uh, references that are all there on the land in our local ecosystems. So linguistically, our, our indigenous languages, they were emergent from our local ecosystems and from that that life of food culture on the land. Mm. Okay, so we're going to speak about language for a second. What does being on the land mean to you? Or what's a definition of that term as you're using it? Yeah, well, I mean, that too is is dynamic and and huge i mean um being on the land <laughs> i mean in in a modern sense yeah yeah well i mean just in a modern sense i mean uh making a conscious effort to to be out on the land as and, and to redesign our lives in, in on a daily practice on on where where does our food come from how do we value natural uh landscapes are we able to design our school schedules and curriculum in order to um, help support being on the land, being immersed on a, on, a, on a regular basis so that we, we nurture sort of ecological literacy with our children. You know, and as an Indigenous people, I mean, our, our relationship with the land is, is inseparable. And, you know, we don't have temples. Our our spiritual interaction is so tied with what we'd call our spiritual grandfathers or grandmothers, the spiritual entities that are actually, they reside in the physical landscape, whether it be the rocks, the soil, the the grasses, the plant medicines, the trees, all of these, we recognize that these have spiritual consciousness. And by immersing ourselves in it, we are able to gain contact and to actually have a reciprocal mm. uh, relationship of communication with that landscape. Well, there's like an emerging idea that nature is a vitamin, you know, like, hey, kids need regular doses of nature. You'll see like forest bathing and these ideas that going out into nature, maybe we could also call that an element of being on the land. It's like the perspective of it is that it's a therapy, that it's something that now in your regular life, you can go take a dose of, take, you know, a little like 15 minutes of vitamin nature, etc. Would you say that you have a view of nature as a therapy or, or as something much different than that? Well, I think that, I mean, of course it's therapeutic, it's 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 essential to our our long-term well-being as a species i think though if we are only to take it in small doses mm. that's not adequate it's, yeah. it's it's not adequate for our well-being as a species going forward for centuries i think already just our dispossession from the land over the last century is is already having such dramatic mm-hmm. and devastating consequences on our our physical and mental and spiritual health so to take half measures of saying, you know, let's just uh, 
tweak our our daily habits or tweak our our, our school curriculum, I don't think it's going to be enough. Yeah. I think that we really have to look at, at making some drastic systemic change in how we live. All right. So being on the land, then there's like a volume to it. And so it's not like just going outside and being in a green space. It also includes maybe having a portion of your dwelling, or as you said, this food culture is relating back to the land. So I want to talk to you a little bit. I mean, since it is therapeutic, now a lot of the work that you do is with, is it just boys or boys and girls where you're actually bringing them, I guess, back into being on the land. So can you share some of what that, what the process of it and what some of the outcomes you've witnessed are? Right. Well, uh, most for the most part, it's it's only been with boys. I have done a, a little bit of work with girls from our local school as well. Took took some girls the other year out on um, a fishing camp. The reason I work with boys is because there is actually somebody else in the community who specifically works with with girls. Mm. Yeah, I guess I, you know, I I had the privilege, I guess, in my family. I had a, a father who was a scholar um, and a, a professor, but he he had also grew up on land very much as a boy um, and had hunting and fishing skills. That was a very important part of our life growing up. I have one older brother who was nine years older who also taught me as I was growing as a young boy. And I really took to that. I always felt a very deep sense of belonging on the land, on the water. And uh, so from a very young young age i i uh, i thrived in that environment and it was uh, my first my first priority in life um, was to make sure that i was spending as much time being on the land and learning learning about my local environment and, and the skills that went with that and then being the youngest in my family i began to have nieces and nephews uh, by the time i was a teenager and so a lot of my uh, nephews i began to teach them as well that's, you know, a little over 20 years ago. So, yeah, I spent a lot of time, many, many trips, hunting trips, fishing trips with my nephews. And then as a, in the last you know, four or five years here living on, on Topeka Seas, I had the opportunity to, to work, begin working with the youth here in the community. I took a job as the community wellness coordinator, which essentially was kind of the portfolio of a sport and rec, but but also uh, drug and alcohol and gang prevention, because of course addictions and and gang activity is is always a uh, is always a, a struggle in any community stricken with poverty. So uh, my my way of connecting with with uh, a lot of the boys who who seemed most at risk was to simply approach them and ask them if they wanted to go hunting with me. <laughs> <laughs> And, and uh, of course, they would jump at that opportunity. And as I come to came to learn, you know, 95% of the boys that I worked with didn't have a father figure in their life. So, you know, it quickly turned into some very deep relationships that I hadn't envisioned at the onset. But uh, I built some some relationships with some with some fabulous young young men. And, you know, they were they were labeled as 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 criminals and as uh, drug dealers and vandals and, and that sort of thing, but they were also very uh, much uh, social leaders and, and had carried a lot of influence in the community with with uh, their peers and uh, so that circle quickly grew. You know, word got out that 
Phil was the guy who, you know, jump in Phil's truck and you'd be off on some adventure for the weekend. We'd go, you know, hunting moose or we'd go fishing for the weekend or something. I want you to hear a little bit more of what this is like. So I'm going to play a clip of a radio piece made by Katie Sawatsky, who is a journalism student at the University of Regina in Saskatchewan, Canada. This first aired on her school's radio show, 2945. Katie tagged along with Philip and some of the boys. Have a listen. taken lots of coaching but you know the boys really learning how to work as a team because they have to stay in formation right stay you know even with each other if somebody falls way behind or someone gets way too far ahead then the rabbits are able to find a way to cut back and get get between them right that takes a lot of it takes a lot of uh, cooperation nobody home off to the next bush like a little pack of wolves coming through the bush here. And uh, so that builds belonging amongst them. As indigenous peoples, especially, I mean, it's, it's this place. You know, our ancestors, we've been here for millennia. Uh, we have a, a deep spiritual relationship with this place. And it, it's a powerful force in our lives. That's good there, Bill. Yeah, just stay about that close to the edge all the way around. You're going down the middle, Kiwana? Okay. We'll wait here. It's kind of an open area. You know, it's a this, smaller one. And this is going to get real. It's thick and tangly, right? So it's going to be pretty tough for them going through there. You move slow, Tyler. You should move slow because Big Bill's going to have to go the fastest because he's going around the outside. In fact, Bill, you should probably be in the middle and let Kwana be up on top because he's got longer legs to move quicker. These things matter. <laughs> especially since we have been forcibly removed from the land for over a century. You know, I think, it, you know, it's, it's the foundation of all of our social crises in our communities. When you can put uh, young people back on the land, you begin to, to see the, the ripple effects throughout their life, right? And a lot of the negative social habits just disappear. There's one right in between you and me. Keep your eyes open. It's right in between you and me. If you want to hear more of Katie Sawatsky's radio documentary, you can connect with her on Twitter at K-D-O-K-E-S-A-W-A-T-Z-K-Y or find her on Facebook. I'll also link to her in the show notes. Here's more of my conversation with Philip. So, yeah, my, my circle of young men quickly grew. And then we also begin to involve ceremony. Uh, my role as a pipe carrier um, and a ceremony lodge carrier, I you know I have sweat lodges and uh, pipe ceremonies, other ceremonies we, we we conduct here at our home. So we're going to be able to involve the youth in that as well. And it's such a learning curve for myself in understanding the opportunity to to learn while we were on the land. You know, there was opportunity to to speak about some of our our traditional values. For instance, as an example, um, there was a young man who who was known for for torturing animals in the community. He'd been known for having uh, killed some cats and, and some dogs and that sort of thing in the community. And of course, he'd been confronted by it. I think he'd been in trouble with the law as well. But I befriended him, you know, and he was very rough around the edges. Uh, but I, I began taking him out with me. 
And what I what I found was that when you took these these sort of tough boys who had a hard edge, you know, they were street tough, but they had no experience in the forest. They had no experience in a boat out on the water. And when you took them out of their comfort zones, they became very dependent and they were wide eyed and very scared. And uh, that then opened them up to receive teaching or to, to discuss some of the difficulties in their lives. And it also provided me with an opportunity to speak about some of our traditional teachings around the responsibility of our relationship with, with animals, um, the responsibility as a hunter uh, when, when, when taking life, why you take life, when you don't take life, what are the protocols around uh, acknowledging the, the spirit of that animal, what animals would you not kill. And so the roles and responsibilities around the procurement of, of food or, or taking of life of, of animals is um, something that this young young man really really gra- grabbed onto, and uh, I never I never let him know that I actually knew about his uh, habit of killing animals. I just saw the opportunity, was able to introduce these traditional teachings in a neutral way. He grabbed onto that, and he became the boy who was always teaching other boys from from then on. He would be the ones teaching them about how to put tobacco down, how to pray. How to, how to do these things. And as I realized, these, these kids, they were just starved. They're starved for, for identity. Hmm. You know, their identity as Indigenous people and what, what that deep relationship with the land is. So you've, you have found, essentially, community leaders and redirected them, essentially, back to being on the land and to, to some successes, have you seen? Well, yeah, I mean... You know, it's hard to measure success. I mean, you, you know, I, I run into the issue of just capacity, right? Yeah, I mean, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm only one one person, one individual. I can only spend so much time with, with individuals, you know, and that's the challenge, right? Because when you're dealing with, of course, youth who are living in poverty and in crisis, you know, um, you, ha- you have to be uh, available for them because it's they're, they're constantly facing challenges uh, day to day that are, well, sometimes derail any progress that you're making. But yeah, no, there's, I, I think that just planting those seeds, you know, sometimes even if it does, you don't see results in a year or two years, I mean, sometimes it, it, it takes it takes many years. But you've planted a seed in, in somebody. They might have a hard road to walk for a while, but uh, when you've introduced young people to a relationship with the land, I think that's something that they never will forget. And maybe at some point in their life, they're going to come back to it. And I'm I'm sort of laughing at my question. I have to almost I have to apologize for my question about it's it's just such a my cultural and and way that I've you know been trained to see the world. Like, tell me about the successes, you know, as a like that the fact that you were out there was the success. So again, I'm just gonna right, like, yeah, I mean sure. I can just hear myself <laughs> like, oh wait, that is such that is my cultural bias is to to not only value the moment by moment, but tell me about, you know. Uh, tell me about the mass application of the thing. You know, so anyway, that was just, you know, Katie Bowman acknowledging problematic potentially element in her own <laughs> way of seeing things. So thank you for so graciously responding to my cultural bias <laughs> we've all, there. We've all been hardwired to uh, looking for results, right? Well, exactly. I mean, it was just, I just, yes. Thank you for being with me in that moment. I appreciate that. No worries. <laughs> anyway. I'm just trying to think of like so many different directions that I can go. So, so you have a young child, right? How, is he five? 
He'll be six on the nineteenth. Yeah, just a, in a few more days. Yeah. yeah, that's just a few days after my son. So they're really close in birthday. And we were talking about. I'm not sure if your son attended, but that there were some. You know, we have a, a local nature school here, but you said that there was maybe it was like a, was it a Cree preschool where they were kind of creating like a it was a way of introducing early language. But that recognizing that all the language is essentially centered, it's all nature-based language, right? Because what else is there if you're a nature-based people who, right. who, with the axis of your culture of being food, it's all going to be related to things that you eat and have to move through. So what would you like to see happen with that, that way of preserving language and also simultaneously relationship with identity and landscape? Right. Yeah, well, this is the urgency, and it's 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 a bit of a, a battle going on presently with First Nations. Uh, I mean, we, we use these different languages here in Canada. We, we, we prefer to, uh, a reservation as a First Nation, and we don't usually u- utilize the word tribe. It's it's First Nation has become the sort of the, the uh, politically correct term of the, the day. But um, anyway, um, around school curriculum, you have some First Nations – Canada who have had the ability to develop their own their own curriculum and implement their own their own uh, their curriculum in their schools just because they've had the means and they've they've had the capacity in in their communities to do so I mean if if as a first nation in Canada if we draft our own laws we have that right as sovereign indigenous nations but if we don't then federal or provincial laws will will take precedent and what we're having now is you're having a seeing now is a big push by both the federal government and provincial governments to to um, eliminate that uh, opportunity for First Nations to draft their own legal frameworks and 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 develop their own school curriculum and to just bring us under the umbrella of the provincial school system and, and, and curriculum, which for myself is horrific because it's so uh, the provincial system is so is so uh, rigid and academically uh, centric. And so for indigenous communities, our needs are so fundamentally different than the mainstream society where we're trying to recover or reclaim culture. Um, so our, our educational needs are, are different. But yeah, making that link between language and, and land-based education and, and food education, I think, is, is vitally important. A lot of people, even in our own communities, they're not making that link yet. Um, I'm making these links because I've been involved in different different aspects of that. You know, I've been involved with, with language reclamation, but I've also been involved with food sovereignty. But these two aren't talking to each other, right? Mm. And I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to connect these dots. I'm saying we need to stop putting these in silos because they're, it's holistic. They all have to go together. And you, but you are seeing some. You know, I mean, I've, I've met others who, who have observed that and we're actually implementing that in, the, in the, their communities. I know in yeah, the neighboring province of Manitoba in northern Manitoba, they they've been really moving forward with a lot of food sovereignty initiatives at first because of the expense of food in the north that has to be flown into these flying communities. So they began to um, get gardening programs, building greenhouses, uh, bringing up you know all sorts of new sort of innovative little farming practices, whether, you know, raising chickens and all these sorts of things that had never been done way up in the north before. And they're seeing great success with it because uh, but they're also beginning to 
connect it with language, where they too were, you know, beginning to see the loss of language in younger generations. So in, in this one community, they they had language gardens. And so they had a, you know, huge garden at their school. And the older ladies of the community uh, who all could speak the language fluently, they were the ones who were also still had gardening skills. So they were running the garden and the students would come out. And when it was that class's turn to work in the garden, it was also, it was Cree class time. And it mm. was, it was total Cree immersion in the garden. And they were able to see, we talk about results, monitoring results, <laughs> the retention rates in, in language just went through the roof as compared to being in the classroom and trying to, to mm. learn Cree. Language gardens. What a beautiful <laughs> solution. I love that. Yeah. And also with natural movement, right? Well, I mean, it's you all know. of it. It's out, I mean, Getting our fingers I mean, dirty. Exactly. And just being outside is natural movement. You know, I think it's it's kind of been reduced to like sprinting and throwing rocks and squatting, but it really is all of the interactions with all that is in the natural world. And that just includes standing outside in a breeze. You know, that's that's definitely also natural movement. So I remember we were talking a while ago when we were together and you had noted that your your personal family has practices that kind of make you an outlier within your own community. Like you don't have a TV in your home, for example. How sure. and I would as far as even hunting goes, like are you an outlier within your own community because of the extent to which you are? comfortable being on the land or or is it have you noticed a change you know or what, what how do you feel i guess having this knowledge or this understanding and wanting to expand it how do you feel relative to the rest of your community right well i i think i, I live a life of obscurity no matter where i go i'm <laughs> i'm i'm a little bit of a different uh creature than uh than the peers i grew up with but um yeah, and, and, you know, and the reality of a lot of First Nations communities, I mean, and, the, and it varies widely. I mean, a lot of a lot of First Nations communities do have a very much of a homogenous sense of identity and a lot of mm -hmm. uh, culture, uh, traditional ways uh, do survive where others you can go down the road to a different community and it's going to be drastically different. And that's very much in the, the, the instance of my community. You know, I think the effects of of colonialism, competing churches, religious institutions, and also just the influence of the television and pop culture has pulled our people in so many different directions into such different states of consciousness. And so it's very difficult to bring our community together and 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 and, and have and share a lot of commonalities that were there just two generations ago. And our mm -hmm. grandparents, our grandparents had a robust food culture in the community. Everybody was growing their food here up until the 1970s. You know, people had a uh, social relationships built around helping one another, whether it was canning food, hunting together, fishing together. We used to have, a, you know, a lot of fishing happened in our community uh, up until maybe 1980. Or, but then, you know, our, lo our local lakes have become so polluted uh, due to agricultural runoff and also raw sewage being released by surrounding cities into our into our water system. So we've lost a lot of that due to that. But yeah, I mean, you know, a, a lot of the other fellows who are hunters here in our 
community, they might hunt, but they're not hunting for the same reasons that I might be hunting. Mm. I see a lot of them have adopted uh, sort of Americana version of hunting, trophy hunting, you know, looking for the big buck. Mm. Um, they, they, they watch the hunting channel and this is, and this is how, where they've learned their hunting skills and implement them because we kind of had a, a, a lost generation there. I think a lot of, in my father's generation, it really hit rock bottom where nobody really, nobody was, was, was keeping that alive and well. And so in our generation, you see people getting back into it, but some of them aren't getting back into it for the same reasons. And for me, they're, they're fundamentally different. They're very different and they encourage a very different worldview. Hmm. There are some conversations like, so I'm just thinking back about to this idea of food sovereignty there are some that will say that wild food is a privilege for various reasons, reasons like not everyone has access to wild spaces or access to knowledge about them. And then there's a perspective that taking from the wilderness puts everyone else at risk because of the idea that like the wild should stay wild. And then I guess maybe humans in human spaces should stay human. I'm not exactly sure of all the nuances of the arguments and maybe other reasons, too. I'm very interested in your perspective being influenced by your relationship and more recent historical relationship with the land. And so I would like to hear you and your voice on the matter. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it gets into discussions around privilege, um, sustainability, you know, does, does the natural world, is it able to provide for for humanity at this as we as we now head towards eight billion people. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't have the solutions for all of humanity. Right. <laughs> you know, and and and, and I, I always think of ecosystems. I mean the, the, the planet was a huge and, and diverse planet with so many different ecosystems and the cultures, the human cultures reflected that. The diversity in, in human cultures reflected that. And the big elephant in the room is, is monoculture, whether it's whether it's mono crops or it's it's, you know, the melting pot of, of, of monoculture in, in humanity. I, I, I know that so many see that as an honorable pursuit, but myself, I'm, I'm very leery of that. I, I see great danger in pursuing monoculture. Diversity is is key to to resilience as human beings. So I think there's many different answers for different peoples where they are. Mm -hmm. And the solutions going forward are going to be very diverse. You know, where I live, now present day, the province of Saskatchewan, I mean, you know, we're a massive, we're the size of California, Oregon, and Washington put together. And there's only one million people there, or <laughs> here, in, in that massive space. And we have two-thirds of that is boreal forest. Uh, so, you know, we do have a different reality than say those people living in California hmm. as, as far as how much our, our, our natural systems can, can carry us forward. So I think for myself as an indigenous person though, and this is a, this is something that gets lost in I think a lot of conversations when it comes to around uh, uh, protecting land, you know, something people should be familiar with is, is the UN declaration of the rights of indigenous peoples. And when it comes around who has first right of access to maintaining a uh, land-based lifestyle, the hunting and gathering, 
I, I don't see the uh, capacity for everybody. And it's not a reality for everybody to, to live that, that lifestyle. But as Indigenous peoples, uh, we certainly have a right to continue. Here in Canada, we certainly do have that right to, to hunt, to fish, to gather year-round. We don't have to adhere by hunting seasons. But of course, that's always under, under threat. And so there's always pressure uh, from mainstream society to, to eliminate that. I think that's, uh, that is always this pressure to, to assimilate, to do away with, with our, our way of life. Which essentially is is genocide. That's cultural genocide, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. And when you, if you want to do away with that that land based lifestyle, you essentially are we would be reducing our cultural practices just down to very shallow spectacles of entertainment, you mm-hmm. know, dressing up and dancing at a powwow. But it really has no spiritual or ecological substance. And if we remove ourselves as indigenous peoples from our actual ecological function, you know, we are we are key species on this continent, Mm -hmm. just like the bison were, you know, the bison and indigenous peoples were a part of the reciprocal relationship that actually made grasslands healthy here on the plains, you know, with both indigenous peoples and the bison being removed, you know, we find ourselves, you know, society finds themselves searching for all sorts of ways to try to maintain grassland health whether with cattle and you know rotational grazing and these sorts of things but i think that when you when you remove indigenous peoples from from the ecosystems that they emerged from it's inevitable that that ecosystem will collapse and so will that indigenous human culture it'll collapse so it's very important that we uh we try to bring those connections back together for the for betterment of all of us really right Maybe I went off topic there. Uh, No, I don't think so. I don't think it's off topic. I think that what happens is these are super complex issues and we're so used to talking about food over here and language over here and and human rights over here and ecology over here. And it's become so parsed that we kind of forget that it's all there's just one system. (laughs) Like It's just one thing happening with so many moving parts that it's so complicated that the tendency is just to think of global solutions, you know, and to recognize the wholeness of it, of something, is also dependent on the wholeness of each of the parts. And that, I guess what I most appreciate about your answer, so no, it wasn't off topic at all, I think is this idea, again, that there's an idea that equality would mean like the single solution for everyone to have exactly the same thing throughout the globe. And what I hear you expressing i believe not to put words in your mouth would be to that that the that the needs are local to the ecosystems and you can define local i guess at lots of different levels that it's it's that complicated to keep thinking about it and i also think it's really just to tie in what you just said now to what you said earlier this idea that language is springing forth culture is springing forth from a local ecosystem that this diversity that you see throughout the world includes the language and the cultures and the landscapes and the way people interact with the landscapes that it's all, it's all tied together. And that preservation of culture indeed requires preservation of the relationships that caused it to express perhaps. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of another conversation. It seems like we had a lot of conversations when we were together, but we were talking about tobacco. So you're talking about not wanting to reduce a culture to maybe the symbolic 
like the symbols of a culture, but the behaviors. And you were talking about tobacco. And of course, I am interested in my personal practices include like 30 and 40 mile walks, you know, like these, these things where I feel like this is how I relate to my landscape is to like physically walk across it. And you were talking about, I guess, the spiritual practice of exchanging tobacco, but it being related, relating to the work that one had to do to gather it. And I, if you could share some of that, I think that that would help solidify for people listening who I would say the bulk of our listeners are not indigenous peoples. And the idea, Mm -hmm. the idea of like, what, what is a spiritual practice? I mean, mean, everyone has their own spiritual practices, but like, let's talk about tobacco. What, what is that relationship with tobacco, the exchange of it? What does all of it entail, you know, in a few minutes? Right. Sure. Well, you know, there's, I mean, you have diversity of different uh, linguistic indigenous groups throughout North America, but I think the the bulk, the the majority of us, we do all have a a common relationship with with tobacco or some sort of form of tobacco. Here uh, on the Northern Plains, we didn't actually use a tobacco plant. We never had a tobacco plant, but we we made a a tobacco, a a smoking blend uh, used used in our in our pipes. And we would use, uh, we call it kniknik, which is bearberry, a bearberry leaf. And then uh, that would be sort of the base. And then you'd also the inner bark of a red willow tree. And then other other plant medicines added to that. So the procurement of that was was very labor intensive. And it would also involve travel and sometimes trade in some instances. instances because in, uh, And you would see variety too, depending on where you are, you know, how far north you were. You know, you're going to see diversity in that tobacco blend depending on people people's uh surrounding flora and fauna right but yeah tobacco is always the 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 center trade item but when i say trade item i mean in in buying purchasing uh anything from you know just in a modern sense i mean if i was to go to an elder and i want to learn a song a traditional song um i would First and foremost is tobacco. You know, to, yeah, tobacco has to be offered, and the amount you know now has changed because you, now you buy a packet of cigarettes or a packet of a pouch of tobacco. But traditionally, it would just be enough to fill a bowl of a pipe, because that interaction that you would share with one another would would begin would commence with a pipe ceremony, and so that tobacco would be offered for the prayers to commence that that interaction. So yeah, tobacco is a very sacred uh, tool. That we use, but uh, I, I've I've been interested in exploring, you know, what is lost, right, in in that process that that we had traditionally of of procuring that that tobacco, you know, the amount of walking that went into it, and as Indigenous peoples, when whenever we are on the land doing something, whether it's whether it's hunting, whether it's uh, picking medicines, there is also uh, a uh, a massive amount of oral knowledge that goes along with it. There is creation stories that go along with that activity. There is there is songs that go with that activity. There are specific prayers that go with that activity. So when we remove ourselves from that actual land-based lifestyle of gathering, the knowledge and the stories and the songs begin to, to, to fall away as well. Um, and, you know, when I talk about giving value to something, giving spiritual power, 
uh, and value to that that to that handful of tobacco. It would have been infused with that power through that through the through the labor that that person went to 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 gather it, and through the the songs and prayers that they had uh, infused into that that tobacco. So when it arrived as destination, it uh, it had great value. Where now today, you know, so many people we we just look to convenience and we only see the surface of things. We don't put any deep thought into or action into into uh, the procurement of the, the items. I mean, this convenience culture where, you know, you run to the corner store and you grab a pack of cigarettes and then you go to the, go see an elder and you're like, okay, can I get this song from you? You know, so much has been lost in, in, in that, right? And and I think that we, we sell ourselves short to just, to just say, you know, we can exchange one for the other, you know? Um, they're fundamentally different. Yeah, it's a difference between a vitamin C tablet and an orange. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, you, you need the fiber, right? I mean, and you need the substance. And, you and know, maybe and it, even the work to pick it or the knowledge of how to plant it. Well, it, and this is how it relates all back to natural movement, right? Because we actually, the consequence of this is we, we see that it, it affecting our bodies. You know, the, the obesity epidemic in First Nations communities is, is astronomical and diabetes, early onset diabetes in, in our children. In fact, I think our stat here, children born uh, in the year 2000, which are, so they're now becoming young adults, you know, 18 years old, two out of three are expected to have uh, diabetes before the age of 40. Mm. You know, an example of this too, I mean, I took a, a group of boys, grade five, 10 and 11 year old boys. I had nine of them. I took them out to, to on a trap line, snaring rabbits. Four out of the nine were too obese to even walk for more than four or five minutes in the snow and over the deadfall and simply had to return back to the van. This is, and this, so this is the reality of, of our, of our, of our people. This is the reality. And this is the effect of being, being dispossessed from a land-based lifestyle. Yes. It's interesting, you know, in in the realms in which I work, there's this, you know, a resonating idea that, you know, movement and and you know land based practices, although I'm not sure that it, that you would read that terminology, are in our DNA. And then, of course, when you've had people removed from the land for a longer period of time, hundreds and thousands of years you kind of adapt to not needing those inputs as much as a culture like yours so recently removed from the land. I think that was maybe one of the first conversations that we had where the consequences are so much. They're so different for populations being forcefully, actively displaced. And I'm trying to point out convenience and sedentarism, the relationship of that. And at first glance, it's because of health. You know, we can talk about things like diabetes and survival statistics, but ultimately I'm very interested in movement ecology and what happens when you have masses of people becoming sedentary? How does that relate to cultural diversity? You know, how, how does my belief that I have entitlement, a privilege of sedentarism ultimately start encroaching on others? Like these are more complex questions, but it really is my personal evolution and my relationship to movement from my personal health to the health and well-being of others. And that's that's a really only a commentary to maybe for the listeners to tie in so much of my work to maybe some of the things that you are 
speaking of, your things that you're speaking of alone are super important. I mean, are like of such greater importance than I would say the way my knees and my hips feel. But just to kind of give people a sense of sedentarism and a lack of being able to move in a natural world is, I think, a really so much more important thing than our personal health. You know what I mean? I guess if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, well, you bet. Yeah, no, I, I say it's always, you know, we in, in, our, in our traditional teachings, you know, the first, never be human-centric. Right. And this is what Western, Western society is all about, human centricity. You know, when we talk about climate change or we talk about, you know, how how is this going to, I always see this, people saying the same things, you know, how is this going to affect human beings? How is this, right. you know, I'm saying, well, we have to stop just thinking about human beings. We have to think about the planet holistically, you know, all life, life systems, you know, and that, of course, comes back to us. But in our teachings, you know, we put human beings at the bottom. We, and we have something called wakotawin. Wakotawin is a loose, very shallow translation is kinship. But it's, but it's actually, there's a lot of complex protocols. Wakotawin, you know, it kind of governs family and tribal relationships between people. But it also recognizes our relationships with all of our life relatives, all of the animal world, the plant world, the medicine world, everything. Recognizing the ecosystem that you live in and how it functions, observing how it functions, understanding the roles and relationships between all of those different life forms in that ecosystem, figuring out where do we fit in, what role do we play in the health and well-being of the function of that ecosystem, and therefore we acclimate to its care and capacity. That's the definition of an indigenous culture. Mm. That's indigenous peoples. And so as we would enter and migrate into a new territory, we would be very highly observant of, of that caring capacity and the, and the relationships with it and always place ourselves at the bottom and say, as long as we respect and take care of this ecosystem's natural function, it will always take care of us forever going forward. That's sustainability. Where you take the human-centric Western worldview of dominance to, you know, to put something under the plow and to, to essentially obliterate an ecosystem for human consumption needs you know that are it's uh so we see this now you know where you know the grasslands of north america you know 90 percent of it has been turned into you know monocrops that are sprayed with insecticides right <laughs> so you know we uh, what what has been lost in that it's it's not it's been absolutely devastating and it's ongoing devastation to uh to human cultures and to into the uh, the function of, of yeah. uh, what 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 did, what did those natural grasslands what was their role in carbon sequestration and, and everything else in the function of the planet so we we always have to we always have to look bigger than our own needs yeah and our own desires <laughs> preference like personal preferences well yeah you bet yeah so here's my question my my last question for you is how is your work what you'd like to accomplish what you and your community require, how is that best supported by non-Indigenous folks? Well, there again, diversity is key, right? You know, get to know Indigenous peoples in whatever territory you're living in. Hmm. You know, their needs on the coast where you are are going to be very different than the needs of my community. That's the first rule, I guess. Um, and then also um, the importance of not being rescuers or not being 
coming in into an indigenous community and saying, hey, I can see what your guys' problem is and I know how to fix it. We've had that for a century <laughs> mm-hmm. and it, it always it always falls flat. I think that uh, there's uh, a lot of uh, very uh, smart young indigenous peoples in communities all across North America. They know that they know what they need, but they're lacking the means. As we know, most of the wealth in the U.S. and in Canada, you know, is is in the hands of of non-Indigenous uh, and not people of color uh, still hold that power and wealth. And so, you know, just supporting what initi- other initiatives that are already happening, uh, I think, is important that are Indigenous-led. Do you have a couple good examples? If, I mean, we can put them in the show notes and point people directly to, you know, great Indigenous-led yeah, well, Lo- local community or even on a larger scale climate work. I think climate work is really important. And I think anybody who's doing food sovereignty, mm. I mean, there's there's all kinds of food sovereignty. It's food sovereignty, like I was saying. I mean, that's the core. Right. It's the core. Everything else, you know, when you're putting food sovereignty and issues back together, that begins to heal the social fabric of a community. That brings back the 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 language that brings back economic prosperity that brings back that put that begins to heal all of that that's been frayed and so for myself that that's where i see the most focus is needed in, in those food sovereignty initiatives and i bet you in the u.s every major reservation is going to have a fairly uh, good-sized community of people uh very conscious of that and moving forward with that i know there's a lot of conferences even more so in the u.s than there is in canada around food sovereignty in fact, I think there's one in your area very soon. There uh, is coming in Seattle, up. where it is. In Seattle, mm-hmm. yeah. And then I think there's another one coming up in Iowa, another one in, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So, yeah, I, th- I think that that's a really good thing to be supporting. Um, here for myself, like locally, I've partnered with the Nature Conservancy of Canada. Here, like we've had the whole truth and reconciliation process happening, <laughs> uh, although it's very controversial. You know, it's all stemming from the residential school systems, but the we had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission come out with, I believe, 94 recommendations for both government and and NGO organizations to to take on um, in a healing process going forward with with Indigenous peoples in this country. I couldn't list them all. You could Google it, TRC uh, recommendations. You know, but different organizations might be able to just say adopt one or two. Mm-hmm. You know, and so the yeah. Nature Conservancy of Canada, because they have land. They have, you know, here in Saskatchewan, they have, uh, I believe, 150,000 acres of natural prairie. They said, well, how, how do we, you know, what role has the dispossession of, from the land has, what role has that played in Indigenous communities? So how can we be of service? So going forward, I, I'll be working with them, doing some contract work, exploring some uh, land-based education opportunities, getting, you know, First Nation schools, kids out onto natural prairie. They have buffalo. Uh, they have some massive buffalo herds in some bigger, some of their bigger properties in the south of the province, and they want to do partnerships with with indigenous communities with raising buffalo. They also want to do uh, you know food sovereignty initiatives. Just really explore. Right now, we're very early days and exploring. You know what all can we do? And over the next year, I'll probably be going out to communities throughout the province, First Nations communities, on behalf of the NCC, sort of letting some of our people know, you know, about the NCC and, and what sort of work they, they are able to do. But they're also, you know, taking that, that approach of uh, letting First Nations persons like myself 
Let's go to the communities. Let's see what they could do. How can they be of support? You know, they're they're not uh, prescribing a, uh, a solution themselves. Mm. They're just saying, hey, we have land. How can we be of use? Well, thank you for all of that. Those are many, many action items. So I appreciate that. And I also appreciate you taking your time away from your much more important work than being on my podcast um, to come and share your perspective and inform many. Hopefully it will trickle back ultimately to the work that you are trying to accomplish. So I just want to say I'm grateful that you've come on and I thank you for all the work that you're doing. Yeah, well, I'm very honored. And uh, no, it's all important work. Thank you very much. Philip Brass is a member of the Pepecasis First Nation in the Treaty 4 Territory of Canada. He is a dedicated husband and father and traditional knowledge carrier. He is a strong and emerging voice in the areas of Indigenous food sovereignty, land-based education, climate action, community health, natural movement, and traditional Indigenous knowledge and wisdom. If you want to make a donation to support Philip's work, he's working with the Nature Conservancy of Canada to develop a number of land-based initiatives. You can donate directly to the Saskatchewan office of the Nature Conservancy of Canada. He's collaborating with Jennifer McKillop there, and we'll put a link to contact her in our show notes. Oh, Canada, I will be in you. Or is it on you very soon? I am headed to Victoria and Vancouver in lovely British Columbia next week. And then I'll be heading off to Europe for a bunch of dates in Scotland, England, Germany, Spain, and Italy. There are spaces in my events in Germany, Spain, and Italy. Everything else is full. I'm sorry. I'm leading a barefoot experience in one of the many Barfus parks, barefoot parks in that country. It is a family-friendly event, and I'd love to see you there. And then you have to check this out. In Italy, I'm so stoked about this. I am doing the book launch for the Italian translation of Move Your DNA in this entirely handmade and human-powered amusement park in Treviso, or probably something like Treveso, Treviso. As in no electricity, as in all of the rides, you have to work to get it to to do what it's supposed to do. So there's a link to all of the events in the show notes. You can also find more on my live events link on the calendar on nutritiousmovement.com. We will link to the Barefoot Park and the Amusement Park because even if you never get there yourself in person, you have to check them out online. Spectacular. So thank you all. For more information, visit nutritiousmovement.com and sign up for my newsletter. Come say hi on social media. I post movement tips almost daily on Instagram slash nutritiousmovement. If you have a question or if there's something you'd like to know, email podcast at nutritiousmovement.com. And if you enjoy listening to Move Your DNA, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps other listeners decide whether they should take a chance on listening. On behalf of everyone at Move Your DNA and Nutritious Movement, thank you for listening. We appreciate your support. This has been Move Your DNA with Katie Bowman, a podcast about movement. Hopefully you find the general information in this podcast informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and should not be used as such. 